Welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations on food and farming. Some of our farmers on the SFA staff are preparing to host a series of upcoming fencing workshops. So we thought we'd bring on Kent Solberg to lay some groundwork on energized fencing essentials. He has tips for getting started, ensuring success, and technical recommendations on fencing components. Let's get right to it. Hey, Kent, good to have you back on Dirt Rich. Hi, Katie. It's always good to be back. So, why energized fencing? So, as the old farmer proverbs, farmer proverb says, good fences make good neighbors and good neighbors build good fences. And the whole idea is just uh, keeping your animals where they're supposed to be. And energized fences can be highly effective and highly at, at managing animals. Um, they're very durable because there's low physical contact from the animal. Uh, it's, it, energized fences are a psychological barrier. It's the shocking power of that fence that deters the animal. And so that animal should be getting a shock um, uh, and, and not be putting pressure on that fence. If they are, something's wrong with the fencer and the fence itself. Uh, energized fences are easy to modify or expand, giving a lot of flexibility to the system. I've worked with a number of producers where they only had money year one to say fence in 40 acres and the next year they fenced in another 40 acres and it's pretty easy um, to do that much easier to do uh, than with barbed wire or woven wire and, and at much less cost uh, we see less animal hide damage and there are some opportunities out there for premium hides for premium wool uh, if that's a concern, uh, energized fencing um, can be a way to do that and, and minimize that. Energized fences are really, truly safe. Um, the, the, it's a pulse. It's not a continuous current. The duration of the pulse is only three ten thousandths of a second with a little over one second gap between each pulse. And so that allows anything with a functioning nervous system that's not physically you know, connected to that fence um, the, the, the natural nervous system response is to retract from that or recoil from that. And so it makes it really safe, much more safer than, for example, the electrical outlet in your home, which is continuous current. And even though it's much less voltage, it's that continuous current that's dangerous. Um, the materials are generally lower cost per foot than barber wo woven wire, and there's lower labor cost to install and maintain fence. Um, the other reason is uh, it gives us, especially if we have an energized perimeter fence and we're doing managed grazing or adaptive grazing, anywhere around that fence, we can tap into that perimeter fence and power our subdivision fences. So, and so it makes it very convenient to do that. If we just had barbed wire or woven wire out there with no energized wire on it, um, then we'd have to carry around a small portable energizer and set up a grounding system every time. And not that that's not doable and can't be done. It's just not as convenient as just being able to clip into uh, an existing energized per perimeter fence. What are some of the key considerations for farms who are wanting to use energized fences? Yeah, excellent question. The first is understanding that's a, that an energized fence is a psychological barrier. It's the shocking power of the fence that controls the animal. Um, it's not a physical barrier like we think of with barbed wire, woven wire, or a board fence or something like that. So once we keep that in mind, uh, it, 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 it's really a game changer on, on the use of fencing for managing livestock. 
We also need to think of what class of livestock are we managing? Is this a cow-calf herd? Are these hogs? Are these hogs that are farrowing on pasture? Are these dairy replacement heifers? Are they sheep? Are they goats? You know, we need to think that it's poultry, you know, what are we trying to fence out there? And if we're gonna be doing multiple species, um, particularly with our perimeter fence, we've got to think about what's the most difficult species that we're managing for. Cattle and hogs that are trained to energize fence are some of the easiest animals to manage with energized fence. Goats, sheep, chickens, they're a bit tougher and we have to use um, some different fence designs in order to make that happen. Not impossible, we just need to keep that in mind. We need to think about the terrain or the topography uh, that we're working in. Um, as, as we put this fence together and what's going to uh, work and what's not. When, what season of the year do we intend to be um, using this fence to control animals? Are, are we just grazing corn stalks in November and December? Or are we grazing pasture uh, in July? Um, or is it a place where we're outwintering cattle uh, into December, January, February, March? Um, so keeping that keeping that in mind. And then who's the owner of that property? And, and we can, again, as I said earlier, one of the beauties of energized fences is that they can be portable, temporary, or semi-permanent in nature. And this allows uh, those fences to be used in a rental situation or in a short-term lease situation. Now, in, um, uh, most of the time, uh, a fence is considered a permanent um, uh, asset put on the put on the land and so if you're renting land you want to make sure you document in your contract or in your agreement who the fence belongs to and what's going to happen with this fence when the agreement is done otherwise it kind of defaults back to the landowner so think that through make sure you spell that out in any lease agreement but that's pretty important to know that it's also important to know where the property boundaries are and it may require uh, a survey being done. It may not. Uh, oftentimes landowners uh, will come together and say, you know, we agree that uh, the boundary is here. Uh, it's been the long-term boundary that's been used for years. This, this often happens if uh, somebody picks up a new piece of property, there's some old fencing there, and it, it's no longer serviceable, but they want to get livestock out there. They, they want to put up serviceable fencing. Um, oftentimes just a conversation with the neighbor saying, hey, this is what I'm thinking I'm doing. I'm going to pull out the old stuff. I'm going to put new stuff in. I'm going to go right over the old line. Uh, it, everybody kind of accepts that you generally is the property line. Sometimes, again, you may have to do a survey. You may not, but think that through. And then what are your legal considerations? What are the state laws, local ordinances? Um, when we start getting on the periphery, uh, some of the suburb areas, and even some the, kind of the next ring outside the suburbs. Some of the townships and some of the municipalities have ordinances relating to energized fence use or any fence use whatsoever. So be sure and check those out uh, before you proceed. You mentioned goats and poultry being a little bit trickier to keep within the energized fences. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, goats are kind of notorious at being escape artists, and some of that's a learned behavior. Um, some of it's just inherent in them, but uh, it's something certainly that needs to be managed for. Um, goats are quite nimble uh, and can get on or around or through many things once they learn 
um, that they can get out of something and they get rewarded on the other side of that with better quality feed or not getting beat up by dominant animals in the flock, um, that animal could continue to do that. And so um, making sure your fence is gonna retain those animals, but it also raises the question, you know, why do animals get out of a fence, any type of fence? And um, let, let's spend some time on that for a minute here because that kind of answers some of this question. Um, some of the biggest reasons animals get out of fences is they're hungry, they're thirsty, uh, uh, breeding behavior, somebody left the gate open, <laughs> um, somebody forgot to turn the power back on. Um, those are, and those things happen, you know, those things happen, but, and, and we don't, you know, as far as leaving the gate open and not turning the power back on, we get busy, you know, I've done it myself. You get busy, you're doing something else. You forget to close the gate, it's the end of the day, you're tired, you wake up the next morning and there the cows are in the yard, kind of a thing. Not a, not, not a disaster, definitely an inconvenience, but you know, that's my fault. That's not the fence's fault, that's not the animal's fault. The point of this is, is a lot of these issues are related to management and how we're managing these animals. And if we're doing a good job of managing our animals, it really takes a lot of the risk uh, out of animals getting out of fencing. And so it's something definitely to keep in mind. Now there are times where animals just, just for whatever reason, breeding behavior, uh, they, they, they breach a fence. And, the answer to that is you got to make the tough decision. Do they stay or if they go, do they go? If they, if they stay, they're going to train their buddies to do the same thing. And so you got to make that hard decision and sometimes remove them, get them out, get them away from, maybe it's time to call them, just flat out call them. Um, it's really, for most people, I don't, you know, people say, oh, it's always my best animal. Well, how could, they're not really your best animal anymore if they're really a, a headache or a problem. And so you're probably going to have to get rid of those uh, before you have a bigger train wreck on your hands. So, so with goats being very nimble, that can be a bit of a challenge. Um, if you're buying a flock, some of those animals may have learned that already. But we do have um, uh, goat herders and shepherds that have started these young goats from a very young age to respect that fence. They've built that trust relationship with them, and they're able to get by with a whole lot less fencing than what's considered the industry standard out there for goats. So goats are just something you have to manage for and understand that they are nimble, they are agile, they can get out, and, and you need to do that. And so generally you need more wires. I can control a whole lot of cattle with a single wire of energized fence. That's pretty hard to do with something like goats. So. Um, something to be aware of. Poultry, same thing. They're small, they're agile, they got wings, they can fly a little bit. Um, and occasionally you do get those flyers, uh, clipping those wing feathers can oftentimes stop that. Um, but you need more of a netting, an energized netting. And there are companies that make energized poultry netting, energized netting for small ruminants, energized netting for hogs. Um, and those are all, the, you look in the catalogs and they'll tell you which size and which ones you, you do need. So. Um, but because of their size and because they can fly, poultry, uh, some of them can fly short distances, a little tougher to manage, but highly doable. Geese, very easy um, to manage. Chickens that can fly a little bit, that's a little tougher sometimes. So it is doable. You just, you just have to pick the appropriate fence for the animals that you're working with. Could you tell us a bit about the specific components of energized fences? 
Yeah, for sure, Katie. So let's start with bracing systems. Um, corner and end uh, assemblies, um, they're like the foundation of a house. They support the entire system. And so it's, it's critical we do a good job with something like this. Um, the, the, the physics behind what's going on there is, you know, the wires are pulling one direction and the bracing system has to work against that tension. And so what we've got going on is like a fulcrum and lever system, if you're familiar with that, where the post, the end post is the lever and the fulcrum is right at ground level. And then the force exerted on that is the tension on each individual wire. So we need to work against that. If we have just one or two wires, uh, and this is pretty common in, in um, permanent cross fence systems, and even some of our semi-permanent uh, fences for grazing like cornstalk residue or even cover crops in a lease type situation. So a bracing system for one or two wires, that can be as simple as a single post. That post should be five or six inches in diameter. It should be eight feet long, and it should be buried at least 40 or set at least 48 inches uh, in the ground. When we get into three or more wires, we're going to need a more robust uh, bracing system. Uh, something like the H brace is most common. There's a New Zealand diagonal brace that's available. There are some fiberglass systems that are kind of a diagonal brace. Uh, type arrangement that can be used. There's a number of different options there. Um, the biggest thing is the horizontal support member, particularly on an H brace or the New Zealand diagonal brace. The length of that horizontal support member should be at least two and a half times the height of the top wire. Two and a half times the height of the top wire. I see a lot of people build H brace systems as I'm driving down the road. That's just way too short. And the physics of what's going on there are going to force that um, corner post or end post to tip up out of the ground much more rapidly than if we get the right length on there. If you kind of think of like a box, like a cereal box, if you set it up on end and put on the table and you, you put one finger at the base of the box on one side and your other finger at the top of the box on the other side and push with that upper finger it's pretty easy to tip that cereal box over. But if, and that's because of the short, dis, short horizontal distance there. If we put that box on its side uh, um, so that it's a longer horizontal distance, again, with one finger at the base of the box on one side on the table and the other finger at the top of the other end of the top of the box and try pushing on that to flip it over without physically lifting your upper finger, it's very, very difficult to tip that over. The same type of physics are working on our brace system. So it's just a way to think that through or visualize it. Line posts. Line posts in an energized fence are simply a spacer batten. You know, if anybody's built barbed wire fence, we know that the standard is 12 and a half to 16 and a half feet between posts, uh, or, or one rod is what most people say, a rod being 16 and a half feet. Um, when we get to high tensile energized fencing, we can go 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 feet apart uh, between posts because all we're trying to do is maintain that wire spacing. Uh, line post materials can consist of wood uh, with an insulator nailed on. They can be fiberglass or a composite plastic. They can be PVC. We can use PVC as spacer battens, not necessarily as a post, so we're alternating a rigid post with just a spacer batten to maintain wire. 
Um, what we really want to do is avoid steel. Um, steel sets it up a, its own set of risks. Now, a lot of farmers want to use steel T-posts because they got them. They can get them cheap, they're available, it's what they're familiar with. The grave danger is there is, yes, you need to put an insulator on there so that we're not grounding or shorting out that fence, but if something hits that wire and breaks that insulator and that energized wire comes in contact with that steel post, we have a dead short on that fence. There's no longer enough voltage on that fence. It's no longer a psychological barrier. Now we're depending, it upon, depending on it to be a physical barrier and we're gonna have failures. We're just going to have failures. So we wanna avoid uh, steel posts uh, if at all possible in building our energized fence. As far as the wire, the standard is 12 and a half gauge high tensile wire, class three galvanized. I recommend a, a tensile strength of 170,000 to 180,000 PSI. Um, a lot of stuff, a lot of the wire is over 200,000 PSI. It's much harder to work with. We don't need it that high PSI in a pasture situation. Our animals should not be putting that much pressure on that fence. We've got other problems we need to address if we feel we need to do that. We can use 14 gauge high tensile wire, which is smaller diameter when we're talking about gauge, the larger the number, the smaller the diameter. We can use 14 gauge high tensile wire for semi-permanent applications, such as again, grazing corn stalk residue or cover crops, or even just a short-term rental or grazing some hay ground with some stockpile forage in the fall. It's a little lighter. We compromise just a little bit of strength, but it's because it's lighter, it's easier to use. It's easier to put up and take down if that's what our intent is. As far as energizers or fencers, the energizer or the fencer, whatever you prefer to call it, is the heart of the power fence system. These should be low impedance energizers with three ten thousandths of a second pulse with a little over one second between pulses for safety reasons, not only for human and livestock safety, but also to prevent from igniting fires uh, out there. Um, we need to fit the energizer to the fence. A lot of people have other issues with their fence and instead of addressing those, they'll tend to just run out and buy a bigger energizer. You know, bigger is better. Um, if, there are manufacturer charts out there to help you determine this. Um, just don't go by the advertisement that says, we'll power up to X hundred miles of fence. There's a lot of assumptions in that. And one of the biggest ones is there's absolutely nothing touching that fence anywhere along several hundred miles. It also doesn't tell you how much power you're going to have at the other end of the fence. Just like there's fit friction or resistance in a hose and the amount of pressure coming out that end of a very long hose is diminished, same thing with wire, okay? There's resistance on that wire. And when we get way out there because of that resistance, we don't have high levels of voltage out there. Again, it's the shocking power of the fence that deter deters the animal. So look at manufacturer charts that have real world examples on there, not just ideal world examples out there, because I don't know any of us who are farming in the ideal. Now, again, if, if, if it doesn't quite fit exactly what you've got, just round up to the next size, but you don't have to double or triple it. If you do that, you could have problems. Uh, you, you could have a lot of voltage spewing out, uh, literally spewing off the end of that fence, and you're going to get shocks on gates, even on buildings, on a very damp and dewy morning or doing during a heavy mist. If you've got a dairy farm and you're milking goats or sheep or cattle, 
um, boy, you could have some real issues there with milking. I know people that have had interference with electronic equipment in their home because they had too big of an energizer and how it was set up. So be careful of that, think it through and get some guidance uh, on, on what you need that's going to work. Now, people often wonder, what kind of energizer should I get? One I plug into the wall? Should it be one that runs off a battery? What about solar chargers? Well, the most reliable for most people is, are ones that plug into the wall um, day in and day out. Uh, unless you're in an area that has frequent power outages, um, that shouldn't be a problem. Battery just allows you to be portable. If it's going to cost you thousands of dollars to get power in on a rented piece of ground, or to graze corn stalks or cover crops on a remote field, you know, for 120 bucks, you can buy a deep cycle marine battery and power air energizer. You do need to rotate it out and, and re, uh, recharge that battery every so often, or you can get a solar panel with that. Um, the solar panel is just a trickle charger to recharge that battery. Uh, nothing magic about it. It's just a trickle charger. Um, the problem in Minnesota, and a lot of people are using our grazing remote places during, you know, November and December, is that, as we all know, in November and December in Minnesota, it's gray, it's cloudy, and the days are short. And there's not enough sunshine often to recharge the battery, even if you have a solar panel out there. So something to keep in mind, you know, July, August, not a problem. You know, we can cruise through with a solar panel on a rented piece of pasture for a long time and, and do just great. It's just things might not work so good come um, uh, November and December just because we just don't get that high amount of sun out there. Gates, there's a number of options on gates. It depends on, uh, you know, your situation. There are pipe gates, there are wire gates. Um, we could spend a lot of time talking about that. Talk to your neighbors, talk to people who are doing it, see what they're using. Think about how you're using these gates. Um, there are drive-through gates, there are, there are um, cattle guards that can be used uh, in heavy traffic situations, uh, maybe where you're running a mixer wagon through on a regular basis. Think through how you're gonna be using it, how much travel uh, you're going to be doing through that gate and, and how to make it work. I, I would encourage you on a perimeter, permanent perimeter fence that if you are putting in gates is to bury uh, insulated cable under that gate to power the fence on both sides and not run the power through the gate as much as possible. It's much more versatile system. Uh, it allows you to leave that gate open for long periods of time to get other work done, whether you're haying, hauling manure, maybe you're doing some planting or seeding, whatever. Um, it, it's worth a little bit of extra effort up front to run insulated cable under that gate and power both sides and not be dependent upon that gate uh, to, to run your power through to the other side. How long do energized fence materials last? What's the financial investment looking like here? Yeah, great question. Everybody wants to know what's it going to cost me. So I've got energized fence materials that are going on 25 years old right now that I'm still using and they work just fine. And that's considered 20 to 25 years for high tensile permanent perimeter type energized fencing is kind of the industry standard and what you should plan for. Um, temporary energized fencing and some of the semi-permanent stuff, uh, it, it depends on what materials you're using. Again, I have um, polywire, high quality polywire and step-in posts that are over 20 years old that I'm using today. Um, and, and 
you know, uh, it, it still works just fine. Um, the lower quality stuff tends not to last as long. And so to some degree, you get what you pay for. Uh, I don't have any reels on my polywire that have lasted that long. They're plastic. They tend to get dropped, handles break, and so on. So, but you can transfer uh, the materials to another reel. And so, you know, typically they expect about 10 years, five to 10 years on some of the temporary stuff. But again, like I said earlier, I have stuff that's 20 years, over 20 years old now uh, that I'm still using. So uh, because of that, it's very low cost. It's much easier to maintain um, than, than something like barbed wire or woven wire that takes more of a beating. You know, in the country, <clears throat> in the part of the world we live in here in Minnesota, we're, we're basically a mid-continent climate. And so we have extremes. You know, last week we had temperatures in the 90s. In the winter, we can have temperatures 25, 30, 35, even 40 below uh, in some places of the state. And that's a 120, 130 degree temperature swing. We have frost uh, that heaves and shifts and moves things around. And so there's more movement out there during the course of a calendar year than, than one would, you know, tend to think about without stopping to think about it, if you will. And so understanding that there's shifting and movement and moisture and hot and cold expansion, contraction, all those things, plus UV light, um, uh, degradation of stuff, uh, all those things influence the longevity of this and the ability to maintain it. And it's, it's just that much harder to retention, retighten uh, barbed wire than it is with uh, properly installed high tensile wire. When you mentioned the extreme cold temperatures in winter, which is a bit hard to imagine right now at this point in the summer, uh, but it made me wonder if that ever affects how well the energized fence works. Yeah, good question. So it, it, it can affect it in two ways. The, the, really, it's not the cold. The cold the cold's going to have the biggest impact on energizers that are powered by a battery. And so if, you're, if, if, a, if a farmer is grazing let's say cornstalk residue in November or complex cover crops in November, December, January on a rented situation, and you're using a battery powered energizer, just like the battery in your car uses, loses um, storage amp capacity, that energizer out there powering that battery, or that battery, excuse me, powering that battery powered energizer uh, is going to lose capacity uh, in cold temperatures. And so it's something to be aware of. And when you know that, you can manage accordingly for that. Um, the bigger issue is snow on the ground. Um, the more snow we get on the ground, uh, snow is an insulator. And when snow is an insulator, um, it's harder for the animal to complete the circuit. So what do I mean by that? Well, an energized fence, um, we have a positive terminal or uh, or a power terminal coming off the energizer, and that goes to the wires on the fence. We have a ground terminal on the energizer, and that goes to a, what's called a grounding system. And that grounding system is consistent of three or more ground rods spaced at least 10 feet apart. Um, and, and when the animal or one of us comes in contact, we're standing on the ground and come in contact with the wire, we're completing that circuit and we receive the shock. And so a bird sitting on the wire, they're not completing that circuit because they're not touching the ground. So they're not gonna get a shock, but your, your, your hog comes along, your goat comes along, um, your, your cattle come along, they touch that wire, they get that shock and, and, and 
and complete that circuit. And so when we get snow on the ground, um, it's functioning like an insulator. It's harder for that animal to get that shock and that's an issue. But what most people find in the winter, if their animals are well fed and the snow is deep and that's a problem, uh, or could be a problem, grounding could be a problem. Number one, those animals don't wanna go trudging through knee-deep snow. It's just too much work. If you're giving them what they need, it's not a problem. Um, if we're trying to control something else, like deer, trying to get in and munch on your apple orchard, that's a whole different deal. And then there's things we can do, such as shifting to an alternating hot ground wire system, so that instead of the animal, instead of us being dependent on the ground for that animal to complete the circuit, they touch both a positive and negative wire or a powered and a ground wire and receive that shock. But that's a little different situation. It's a little more complicated and tricky than most people have to deal with in a livestock situation. And, and fences can certainly be designed to handle that, but that's, that's a whole other story than if we're just dealing with our cattle out bale grazing in the winter. How do we ensure that the energized fence will work properly? Yeah, great question. There's, there's, there's four big things that we have to pay attention to. Number one is maintain adequate voltage on the fence. Again, it's the shocking power of the fence that controls the animal. Ideally, we like to see six or 7,000 volts on that fence. When we get below 4,000 volts on that fence, um, we're gonna have some animals that aren't gonna respect that too much and start slipping through. And this time of year when the grass is growing vigorously, uh, we get a vegetative load on that fence that gets tougher to do, but it's a management thing and it's something to be aware of and manage for. Number two, have sufficient grounding on that fence. Again, we recommend a minimum of three six-foot galvanized ground rods on permanent fences, and these need to be at least 10 feet apart. Number three, uh, maintain proper wire spacing and tension, particularly on high tensile fences. Um, the wire and posts uh, spacing will totally depend on the type of animals uh, that are class of livestock that you're managing. On high tensile wire, we like to see between 150 and 200 pounds of tension on each wire. And the best way to really know that is to use an indicator spring uh, on, on each and every wire. Uh, a lot of people don't do that. They do it by guessing by golly. Um, and, and that's okay. But you know, as farmers, if a little tight is good, a lot tight is better. And that puts extra strain on, on your whole system. And you have to build a more robust system. It ends up costing you more money, uh, a little more difficult to maintain um, than just hitting kind of that sweet spot of 150 to 200 pounds of tension per wire. The fourth, fourth thing we need to pay attention to um, to make sure the fence is working properly is train the animals to respect the fence before they go out on pasture. This is super critical. You just can't take a bunch of steers from you know, Western Idaho that just came off the range and turn them loose on an 80 acre pasture with an energized fence around it in Minnesota, you're gonna have a train wreck. If they don't know what those materials are and what they mean, um, they're just gonna blast right through them. And so you need to set up a scenario in order to train those animals. There's some really good ideas out there on how to do that. You can just have a secure pen where you run a, a, a cross wire, a poly wire, the same wire and posts that you, they're gonna confront when they go out in the field uh, in there and put adequate voltage on it, leave them in there for 48 hours. They're gonna figure it out pretty quick. There's some neat training paddock ideas out there for larger herds or flocks. Um, and a little hard to describe, uh, 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 in a podcast here, but 
Uh, basically, it's a couple acre area that's got a very secure perimeter fence. Oftentimes, it's like barbed wire, woven wire, wood, multi-strand, very, very solid fence. And inside that, they'll put a variety or a number of short um, uh, polywire stretches uh, out there perpendicular to the perimeter fence. Those are energized first time around when those animals are tearing loose, they're probably going to blast right through them. Second, third time around when they calm down a little bit, they're going to be more curious. They're going to check them out. That's when we want a good, powerful shock uh, to get them to re respect that fence up front. And once they do respect that fence, and again, when, once we take care of making sure the gates are closed and the power's turned on and they're getting fed and watered uh, adequately and not pushing them too hard, uh, a very, very effective and efficient system. So for folks who want to get a bit deeper into fencing, I, I hear we have some workshops coming up. Yeah, we do, Katie. Um, August 25th, Temporary Fence Tips and Tricks for Managed Grazing at the Walter Organic Dairy Farm near Villard, Minnesota. September 15th, Temporary Fence Techniques for Managing Silvopasture at Early Boots Farm near Sock Center. October 13th, uh, we're going to be covering fence options for grazing cover crops and for corn residue at Voss Farms near Painesville, Minnesota. And then on October 29th, again, fence options for grazing cover crops and corn residue down at Dry Creek Red Angus uh, near Goodhue, Minnesota. And they can go to the SFA website for more details on that. It feels like we've already covered a lot today. So what will you be getting into at the workshops? Yeah, Katie, it's going to be very hands-on. These will be limited uh, workshops and the number of people, so people will have the opportunity to get hands-on experience and practice with these materials. Uh, we're going to limit it to 10 people plus two SFA staffers at each one. And so uh, at some of the workshops, we're going to be focusing on polywire and temporary fence, and we want you to get uh, proficient at that. We want to give you an opportunity to get your hands on a variety of materials so you can see what's available and see what you like. Uh, temporary fence materials are kind of like buying a pair of shoes. You know, you, you gotta try them on, you gotta pick it up, you gotta feel it. And if it, it, it's like a lot of other tools, if it feels good in the hand, if you like using it, it's gonna be a joy to use and you're gonna use it every day. But if you buy a pair of shoes that don't fit well, they're gonna get relegated to the back of the closet and you're just not gonna get get a lot of enjoyment out of using them and a lot of use out of them. So there'll be opportunities for that to get your hands on. On the semi-permanent fencing for grazing corn residue and cover crops, we're gonna build uh, segments of high tensile energized fence and teach people how to do that, talk about how to troubleshoot those things and how to manage those things. And then we're gonna take it down uh, so people can see how easy it is um, to use this as a semi-permanent design. So great opportunity to get some hands-on learning and encourage you to register early to make sure you get a spot at these. And that registration will be at sfa-mn.org soil, and you'll find some more details there as well about each event. Well, thanks so much, Kent. This is a lot of good information for folks. You're welcome, Katie. I hope people find it useful and look forward to seeing folks at some of the workshops. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture, done well, heals. For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.